He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Coming at you from AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering Orlando and the Space Coast. You can find us online, CybersecurityTodayRadio.com, on Facebook and Twitter, at CybersecRadio, uh, my personal Twitter account, at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, and you can email us at JohnBambanekRadio at gmail.com. Uh, we do take listener questions uh, for our social media segment that we have from time to time on things you seeing online, uh, scams, or what you need to know to protect you, yourself, and your family. Uh, this week, uh, recording the show from Vienna, Austria. Uh, but the first story I wanted to cover was out of Chicago. A couple was buying a home. Uh, they got an email from their lawyer, uh, you know, a few days before the closing saying, here's the details of where to wire the money. They put down a little over $300,000 uh, uh, for their house. So had a, a large enough savings to do that. They show up to the closing and everybody's like, well, when did you wire the money? Do you have a cashier's check? And they're like, well, we responded to your email uh, and wired the money where you told us to do. What it turned out to happen is that somebody knew that they were buying a house, knew who their lawyers were, and sent them an email impersonating the law firm with fake wiring instructions. Well, I mean, the wiring instructions were real, just not to the correct bank account. It is possible to recover money that's been wired incorrectly, but you really got to do it within 24 hours. So by the time they realized what had happened, the money was already gone. Uh, the bank uh, wouldn't refund them the money. They were they were essentially out their life savings. A large sum of money is $300,000. The main point I want you to take away from this story, you know, I'm sure many of you listening to this have bought a home, may sell a home. Uh, have had a couple of large dollar transactions in your house. I want you to remember this point. Email is insecure and it is insecurable. Let me repeat that. Email is insecure and it is insecurable. There is no product I can sell you that will fix this. There is no product out there. This was what we rely on for email was something developed in the 80s before we even had the idea of a public internet, right? There is very little in the way of spoofing protection. Uh, and by spoofing, I mean, people can send and have sent from time to time emails that look like it comes from my email address. It's built into that. When I was a college student 20 years ago, we would send out prank emails from university administrators and, and whatever, and we all thought it was fun. And I mean, you know, it was harmless fun. There were pranks. But criminals have been doing this for a long time because it is, it is fundamentally insecure. So if you're going to engage in a $300,000 transaction, pick up the phone and verify the information that you are given. 
right? Many of us aren't going to engage in transactions like that. You know, if you've got a law a lawyer representing you in a real estate closing, calling on, say, I just got this email. Here's the bank account and the routing number you want me to wire it to. Is that correct? You know, because a phone call and a brief uh, period of time of trying to verify that is much less than the hassle of that money going away. This kind of tactic, these kind of scams take place. They target major businesses. We call it business email compromise where they impersonate CEOs of major companies. They'll wait for invoices to come in. They may tweak the invoice. They may do any number of things to redirect payment on purchase orders and the like to their bank accounts wherever they happen to be. There's a lot of criminals out there. A disproportionate number tend to be from Nigeria, if you can believe it or not. But all involve this basic thing of impersonating somebody you are doing business with, in this case, a lawyer on a real estate closing, to say, oh, by the way, that money that you need to be sending, and you know you need to send it because you're actually engaging in that transaction, it needs to go here instead. Uh, you send the money, and like I said, you have at best 24 hours to reverse that. And if you don't, then you know you have some very hard decisions that need to be made. Um, this is one of the first cases I've seen, uh, probably because of the large amount of dollars that were, uh, that were lost, where the consumer themselves was out the money. A lot of people are concerned about credit card fraud and all these kind of things. And certainly, right, you know, don't not be concerned. But I have had in the past two or three years, my credit card information has been compromised seven or eight times. Nothing I could have done. It was just a real retailer or a hotel that I stayed at once, lost the credit card information. I call up, I get a new card. If there's fraudulent transactions, I call up, say that was not me. I've had very little hassle in dealing with that and, and you, ha uh, you shouldn't have any kind of hassle with that either. But when you're talking real money and saying, oh, by the way, somebody tricked me into wiring $300,000 to another account, uh, you know, banks are less likely to not likely do anything to make you whole, which means you're out that money. So important things to realize, right? You're buying a house or any significant high dollar transaction. One, don't let them do business with you in email, right? Just say, hey, you can call up on the phone or ask them, you know, what do you have for secure email? What do you have that ensures encryption? What do you have to make sure that uh, these kind of events don't happen? And if they don't have a good answer for you, they, they, they kind of look at you funny. Email encryption, what's that? If you're talking about a $300,000 transaction and they're not taking basic steps to prepare, uh, to protect the confidentiality and security of that transaction, you probably need to think about another person, another bank, another real, uh, law firm, another realtor, what, whatever. This is real money. Somebody wants to transact in $5 off Craigslist for something you're selling out of your garage, it's $5, who cares? $300,000, it's time for a little bit of scrutiny on that. If you're a realtor, you're a small bank, a small law firm, and you have questions about how to do this. There are services out there that provide secure email solutions. There are things you can do for your email called SPF, DKIM, and DMARC. Uh, talk to your tech support guys and say, how can I implement those things to give me some awareness uh, and protection against spoofing and some of these criminals? But ultimately, it comes down to the more amount of money in a transaction 
the more rigor that you need to apply, right? You know, in this case, right, the couple got an email from their lawyers about a house they were buying, all the information checked out. If you looked closely enough, you would have seen some odd expressions that showed uh, that it wasn't a native English speaker. You know, so if you paid close enough attention, be like, that's not how we express ourselves in America. Why is that? You know, but ultimately involves, you know, taking a step, say, all right, somebody wants me to wire $300,000. Let me call them up up on the phone and have them read the bank account information back to me. Uh, Just to be absolutely sure it's a large amount of money. You know, we're not talking about garage sale dollars here. And you may be out that you may be out of luck. Uh, to what extent uh, the various identity theft protection products will protect against you for these kind of things, I don't know. But ultimately, I've said it before, I said it again, you know, you're the only one that's going to be able to protect yourself against these kind of threats. And in this case, some of the best advice is, you know, if you're going to wire $300,000 for the house you're going to retire in, pick up the phone, verify that you have the information correct, Uh, If you're going to pick a bank or realtor, you know, they're going to want to see things like tax returns, you know, say, oh, hey, email your tax returns. You'd be like, you got a secure solution for that because I really don't want to put, you know, three years of my taxes over the open Internet. Uh, Really encourage these small businesses or large businesses to do things the secure and the right way, because at the end of the day, you're talking about a lot of money. And if you're out that money, it's a it's a very big problem. So we're going to take a short break right here. Stay tuned for more tips and more cybersecurity news that you need to know. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. We will be right back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanak. You're listening to John Bambanak the most trusted name in cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. Last segment, talking about a uh, phishing scam, an email scam, where people were uh, tricking you to send your real estate closing uh, funds, wire them to another bank, even though that you don't intend to. That tactic of using um, fake emails or spoofed emails to trick you to compromise yourself, it's called phishing, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, uh, just like phishing except with the initial P-H. But ultimately, the idea is to get to trick you to compromise yourself, to otherwise impersonate somebody else to get you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise do, right? In the previous segment, we talked about wiring information for real estate closings. We're going to continue that theme here uh, in this segment. What other enterprising criminals are doing, uh, as many of you know, there's a black market for stolen iPhones. They'll steal your iPhone if you lock it or have uh, some remote feature on it to, to wipe it. They have a problem of trying to get into the phone later. One way or the other, the phone still has value for them. Uh, they, you know, because they stole it and they can't use it, you know, they could recycle it or any number of things that they do, uh, with iPhones. But if the phone is locked itself, or if they can get the phone unlocked rather, they can get a lot of more value out of your stolen device. 
So criminals have figured this out and have developed tools, uh, phishing kits specifically for this purpose, specifically for iPhones, to try to uh, create a mechanism and a tool set where criminals can get you to unlock your iPhone and give up your Apple ID and your password. One of these tools is called Apple Kit. You can buy it on the underground black market, dark web, that kind of stuff for $300. And essentially what this tool does, it's emailing uh, people all the time uh, saying, hey, I'm an Apple representative, whatever, ultimately trying to get people to enter in their Apple ID and password into a web interface so that they can use that information to then unlock your phone uh, that they've stolen, wipe it, and then reappropriate reappropriate it to somebody else for higher black market value, right? So there's a lot of techniques out there for a wide variety of things, but one of the talk about this one, right? The, the new iPhone 10 over $1,000, a lot of money if somebody could just rip that out of your hand that really is just a small device in your hand. It's very easy uh, to take. So in essence, right, criminals have these tools. They find your email uh, for a variety of means. Uh, many people have their personal information on their phone saying, if this phone is lost, contact me here, whatever. Siri may give some clues. When my phone is locked, I can call my wife, for instance. Uh, people may call in uh, to the phone that can answer the calls, even when the phone's locked. So ultimately, uh, it comes down to I mean, you've already lost your phone, you filed the claim, you probably got another phone, but you don't really want the criminal to get as much out of it as possible. So always be wary when you get emails, you know, that purport to be some company like Apple, Microsoft, whomever, uh, you click on some link, you know, and it says here, enter your username and password. There's been lots of scams uh, this year, but really for many, many years of clicking on things and giving away your user uh, username and your password. There's lots of ways criminals use that information. In fact, it is a go-to tactic for intelligence agencies who are engaging in espionage. They love stealing passwords to just impersonate the targets because that's a lot easier to do than actually using vulnerabilities or some of the sensational things you might see on Mr. Robot of hackers, uh, you know, using some special high-tech tools to break into things. Uh, that certainly does happen. The next segment, we're going to be talking about vulnerabilities a little bit. But sticking on this one for now, right? you get an email, always mouse over whatever link to see where it's actually taking you. Right? Someone says, click here to log into your Apple account, you know, mouse over it, look at the bottom of your web browser. You know, if it says apple.com, maybe it is apple.com. Often it will say, uh, Jimmy's going to hack you.ru or something or some garbage. Uh, many websites rely on small typos where, you know, it might look like apple.com.co. Uh, there's a, a fake news site, for instance, abcnews.com.co. Uh, that I've seen a lot uh, on social media until recently, until that was exposed. So mouse over that. If you're looking at your email on your mobile phone, if you press and hold the link uh, for a few moments, it'll, it'll pop up and show you what that link actually is. Usually you can spot it right away and get an idea, hey, this is not safe. Because once they trick you to give your username and password, there's not much you can do except hope that you reset the password quicker than they access the account. To give you an idea of how prolific this is, I know we've talked about it on the show, you may already be aware, the 50,000 some odd emails that were leaked by John Podesta, put online by Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, the entire tactic that uh, the Russians used, or at least allegedly the Russians, 
was sending John Podesta a Google password reset fish. Hey, we've detected unusual activity on your account. This is Google. Click on this link. Reset your password. Uh, you know, chain of events happened internally at the Hillary for America campaign, leading to uh, a staffer for John Podesta doing exactly that, clicking on it. Oh, what's your username? Uh, John Podesta, gmail.com or whatever it was. What's your current password? What's the new password? The Russians saw that. They had the password. They locked, logged in, downloaded all the emails, and here you go. This, this tool, AppleKit and others, similar type of genre of tools, very popular out there, a very popular technique because it's really not hard. $300 is not an expensive tool either. If you're talking about a $1,000 phone, a $300 tool that you can reuse again and again to unlock iPhones is really not that bad of an investment, right? And this is uh, organized crime. This is big business. So always be aware of what you're getting an email, especially when they want usernames and passwords. I said it last segment. I will say it again. I am sure I will say it in future shows. Email is insecure and it's insecurable. The more sensitive somebody is trying to get you to do uh, via email, the more wary you need to be, whether it is bank account instructions for wiring closing payments, whether it's your Apple ID and password, whether it's health records. When the stakes are, are higher, more rigor needs to be done. Apple will often, uh, you know, no, no one is going to directly ask you for your password in an email. You know, but if you don't initiate contact of saying you need to reset your password, odds are, uh, in very rare cases, except in very rare cases, that uh, those those kind of things are legitimate. But always look at that link, see where it in fact points. If you get an email saying this is Apple, you should reset your password. We've detected unusual activity. Open a web browser and type apple.com directly or gmail.com directly. Don't click on links because they can often point in places you don't intend. There may be small typos that are hard to perceive. Also used in the DNC breach was uh, a small typo in a domain name, misdepartment.com, who did do tech support for the DNC. The T and the R were transposed, a very slight typo that most people would have never noticed. So look for those subtle clues to a small typo domains, but really comes down to stop, think, connect, the more sensitive somebody is trying to get you to do something in email, uh, the more you should try to verify it and more steps that you t should take. I'm going to take a short break here. We're going to bring on Sean Waterman from cyberscoop.com talking about the vulnerabilities equity process, uh, some things that our national government is taking a look at. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. We will be back after this short break. John Bambanek on the radio and on the lookout for the latest cyber threats. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You've tuned into Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now is Sean Waterman, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me on, John. It's always a pleasure. 
Yeah. So uh, a lot of interesting news out of Washington, D.C. last week uh, and and wanted to talk a couple of stories uh, that you've been covering. The first is uh, what's called the vulnerability equities process, which sounds uh, very complicated, uh, but eventually, but at its base level is how the government deals with vulnerabilities in computer software that they may be exploiting for espionage or national security, but those same vulnerabilities affect you or me or businesses or hospitals in balancing the needs of espionage and uh, defending our own critical networks. So tell us, you know, what are the, what are the developments that you've seen out of the White House uh, with this process? Well, so what happened is that the White House actually published a charter which goes into um, quite a lot of detail, actually, about the process that uh, the government uses uh, when it discovers uh, one of these vulnerabilities uh, to decide whether to secretly retain it for use in intelligence operations or to disclose it to the manufacturer so that it can be fixed. And, you know, it's a, it's a, as you know, John, these are very complicated conversations. Uh, you, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things to be taken into account. Who, you know, what's the impact of the vulnerability? What products does it does it impact? Uh, how widespread is it? How easy to exploit is it? How likely is it that it'll be rediscovered by somebody else other than the U.S. government? Because I mean, that's mm-hmm. the sort of nightmare scenario, right? That that the U.S. government keeps this thing for uh, for its own use, but then someone else is also using it, unbeknownst to them, and um, you know, they've basically ensured that the world is unprotected from it uh, by keeping it a secret. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult balance. Um, the uh, the uh, jury uh, seems to have come back uh, moderately happy, I think, with the, with at least the transparency of it, you know, if not the sort of substance of it, I think there's generally a welcome that the government have published this thing that uh, Rob Joyce, the White House cybersecurity coordinator, did an event in Washington where he uh, took questions from reporters during a formal Q&A and then afterwards, you know, for about 15 or 20 minutes during a little huddle at the side of the stage, he, um, you know, and he, uh, he, he, he really did sort of uh, try his best to answer everyone's questions and, um, uh, you know, so I think uh, now there's a lot of questions about the policy itself but I think the transparency uh, of, of publishing it, uh, you know, is welcomed. No, no, and I think that's definitely true as well, right? I mean, as uh, in the aftermath of, of WannaCry, right, which used leaked NSA vulnerabilities that, uh, as many people who've listened to this program know, caused a great deal of damage, uh, you know, to some U.S. companies, but really uh, in Europe, uh, the National Health Service, a couple of other uh, big institutions. Uh, Maersk, uh, the global shipping company, I believe they wrote off $300 million. Uh, as part of uh, yeah. their costs of that and all in its basis that somebody took one of the NSA's vulnerabilities to Microsoft Windows that got leaked and was out in the wild for a little bit, uh, combined ransomware with it to to devastating effect. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate about this, right? And rightly so, because, you know, tools used by the NSA and others for espionage, uh, if they're in the hands of others and we don't know really if they're in the hands of others until it's too late, right? They can have their own agenda because it's certainly possible that other people develop these vulnerabilities independent of those who are working, 
you know, in a windowless basement somewhere in an intelligence facility. Uh, that That's right. And, you know, as you know, John, there's a big debate about what the, uh, they call it collision discovery or, or mm-hmm. rediscovery, what the rate of that, how often that happens. And, um, you know, uh, there are different, you get, if you look at different data sets, you tend to get different answers, obviously, but that's, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be a, a consensus on what the rediscovery rate is likely to be for the NSA's uh, mm-hmm. stockpile of vulnerabilities. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's also the question of, uh, of uh, vulnerabilities that are bought, you know, rather than discovered. And, um, you know, typically, uh, uh, John, as you can probably imagine, mm-hmm. there's a pretty uh, robust non-disclosure agreement that the government has to sign when they when they uh, buy one of these mm-hmm. uh, or maybe rent them, and uh, you know that 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 sort of uh, immunizes that against the against the whole process. It doesn't. Previously, the uh, the. Uh, <clears throat> The agency, if they bought it, they didn't even have to uh, bring it to the VEP. Um, uh, but now they they have to, and uh, they have to explain. That. So so at least the uh, there's some oversight. There's some uh, there's some uh, check and balance on 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 how agencies are using these uh, uh, these uh, zero days for sale uh, 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 floors that they're buying. Right. And, uh, you know, the one thing that needs to be balanced, right, which I don't know how much they they go into it in the report, is that we knew the vulnerabilities the NSA had got leaked with shadow brokers. There was a patch available for the flaw uh, that people were able to apply, but nonetheless, it still infected many machines worldwide because they weren't patched for a variety of reasons. But so much of our infrastructure and equipment, things that we don't think have computers attached to them, you know, things like elevators. You look at the back of an elevator, there may be a Windows machine attached to it to control the elevator going up and down. Have these systems attached to it or vulnerable to exploits, medical equipment especially, that can't be patched or is very difficult to patch or the patch may not be available to them. Uh, so balancing all of that with uh, risks inherent in embedded systems and Internet of Things that we hear a lot about, uh, are they thinking about that problem? Do you think they've accommodated that in the policy? Well, um, so that's a really interesting question. And um, uh, it comes down to, um, you know, one of the agencies that's not, there's a, quite a lengthy list of U.S. agencies that are involved in this process, mm-hmm. but none of them are the Health and Human Services Department or the Food and Drug Administration or the Office of the uh, National Coordinator for Health IT, you know, none of the uh, agencies that have specialist knowledge about this very narrow but extremely critical slice of our IT infrastructure, which is medical devices, you know, medical operational networks, Works and and electronic health record systems and all of these uh, you know there are there are unobvious dependencies right that these devices have with uh, for example BusyBox right mm-hmm. everyone knows that's a that's an open stack uh, software for Internet of Things uh, you know and it's mainly used in consumer devices so 
if you were on the VEP and uh, there was a BusyBox vulnerability, you might not think very much of it. But BusyBox is also used in a lot of um, uh, bedside infusion IV machines and medical imaging machines. So, so you know, your vulnerability there, but that, that is what uh, is referred to as a non-obvious dependency. And, and you know, you, you, uh, without the argument from the critics uh, who've raised this issue with me, is that without that domain expertise in the room, uh, you know, there's a danger that those equities, the equities of the medical device manufacturers and users, won't be uh, properly taken into account in the process. Well, no, and I think that's very true. And I think, I mean, and that's in fairness to the White House, you know, I don't think we've fully gotten our mind around all of these, uh, all of these particular problems, right? You know, uh, I would hope that post WannaCry, uh, one of the things that really put some fuel on this to, to get it moving forward would get people thinking about medical devices. But there's one other department agency uh, that I don't see involved now just kind of skimming the list. I mean, Department of Energy is there. So I would think, I would hope they're thinking about the power grid. But I don't see Department of Transportation. Increasingly, we're putting cars right. on the internet with 4G receivers. So please stay tuned. We're going to have Sean here after the break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambinek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambinek. Listening to John Bambinick, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. Still with us is Sean Waterman from our digital partner, Cyberscoop.com. Uh, Sean, there was another story that uh, you had reported on this last week since we're already talking about vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, it's a good segue into that, uh, particularly a reporting from uh, a group called Freedom House on how governments, not our own, uh, but other governments in the world are using vulnerabilities not for espionage or national security, uh, but to target their own citizens. Uh, tell us a little bit about that report. Well, what, what the report, this is the Freedom House's annual Freedom of the Net report, which they've been doing for a while now, where they basically look at internet repression uh, in uh, 60-odd countries across the globe that account for about nearly 90% of the world's internet users. And, um, you know, what they're looking at here is the use of malware, DDoS attacks, and other what they call technical attacks against you know, websites of independent news organizations or against the email accounts of, uh, of human rights campaigners or dissidents and opposition leaders. And, um, and what they're saying is that uh, actually this was in um, 36 countries, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, up from 25 last year. And that makes it, I mean, this is the thing that really knocked my socks off, John, that makes it the second most common form of internet repression after, you know, actual arrests and tossing people in jail, right? So, so that's the most common form of is, is arresting people for posting content on the internet or social media. But the second most common form is taking their websites offline with DDoS attacks or, right. or surveilling them with malware, uh, you know, or using other kind of technical hacking techniques to, uh, you know, to either interfere. I mean, for, uh, one thing they, they, they have done is to hack people's social media accounts. Mm -hmm. In Belarus, uh, they... 
there was a Freedom Day demonstration planned, and, and a few days beforehand, they hacked the guys, the organizer, the chief organizer, they hacked his Facebook page, and they sent messages to everyone telling them it was cancelled. So, you know, so that sort of thing, um, you know, we're just basically seeing a massive rise in. And, and the other point that they made in the report, uh, John, which, which is uh, worth reading, you know, it's quite, it's, it's nicely put together and it's quite short. Um, and you can find it on the Freedom House website. Uh, the other, the other thing uh, uh, that they uh, mm-hmm. that they talked about is the fact that these, this stuff is now so widely available because it's so poorly reg- sale of it, so poorly regulated, so widely available and increasingly affordable that you know even local police agencies, local police forces in in podunk towns in Mexico can now afford to you know buy these exploits and use them to to monitor you know to, to spy on local mm. journalists or local watchdogs who are you know perhaps uh, documenting police uh, human rights abuses no i mean that's definitely scary stuff so the one thing i was thinking about when you were talking is it wasn't entirely uh, accurate to say the us government doesn't use this there were sort of stories of of last year i believe when the fbi used these kind of hacking techniques to expose pedophiles there's rule 41 in the federal judiciary to go use more uh, uh, aggressive techniques to find criminals and you know some people have dispute about that because uh, you know they're concerned the fbi would target you know, other people besides pure conventional crime, but certainly in these other countries, right, the same techniques used for national security and, and legitimate espionage uh, can be used against dissidents. In some cases, we've seen certain countries engage in this behavior for years, but this growth to uh, 34, 36 countries using these kind of techniques in countries like Mexico, Venezuela was also mentioned, uh, is certainly alarming as, as, as somebody who travels, uh, you know, all over the world, right? I, I, you know, I've been to some of the countries mentioned. Uh, so knowing, and certainly with what I do, I know this goes on, but uh, that uh, the way our digital lives is increasingly online, there's a lot of risks uh, that that carries for people who might be targeted by their own governments uh, for a variety of reasons. Well, well, that's true. And, you know, one thing that the report did note was that, uh, you know, there's two ends to this. It's not just that these uh, these network uh, uh, weapons have proliferated and become cheaper, more widely available. It's also that people don't look out for their security, John. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean... And we all know uh, from our own experience that it can be a real pain. Uh, but, you know, two-factor, uh, using encryption, um, uh, you know, using Tor or a VPN, uh, you know, I mean, these are things that if you are going to be an activist in one of these countries, um, you know, you definitely need to be to be doing. And if you're not doing it, then... Well, you know, the record shows that you're going to suffer as a result, unfortunately. No, I think you, know, you make, make a great point there and uh, give a plug to a group that I'm, I'm very tangentially a part of called Security Without Borders, which is professionals like myself helping activists in these areas to, to be more secure, right? And we're not uh, doing anything that we wouldn't do for others. We're just donating our time to say, hey, you can use a VPN or tour you know, strong passwords, things to protect your personal security if you're in a place where that's that's a legitimate concern. So, 
you know, there's there, there's efforts, you know, more on the part of my fellow peers and professionals uh, to deal with that specific problem. Well, and that's and that's awesome because I mean, you know, the big problem with this, as you know, is that uh, even if people want to uh, protect themselves, often they don't have the knowledge or the capability to do that, and and yet it's. Uh, you know, with a, with a short, I'm sure, uh, you know, with a, just a little bit of help from a professional like yourself, John, they can make themselves a lot harder a target. All right. And that's why, uh, you know, I, I tell fellow professionals all the time, you know, yeah, we're paid a lot of money for big business, but try to make uh, life a little bit more secure for those of us around us uh, who, who wouldn't have uh, large security budgets or a CIO or anything. So uh, with that, want to uh, thank you again uh, for being on the show, Sean. It's always a pleasure. Well, I'm glad to hear about that, that good, those good works, John. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so keep it up and thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Sean Waterman of cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. All right. Always a pleasure to have Sean Waterman on, on our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Go ahead. Check them out. They have a lot of great reporting out there. Uh, certainly, right, that last story, governments hacking their own citizens. Going back to the theme of the first two segments, right, a lot of that can be taking place of the phishing attacks uh, fake emails purporting to be somebody else, try to get them to compromise their own security. Lots of things out there, but really coming back to the fact that email is insecure, it's insecurable. Another story we didn't get to was Sean, but CyberScoop's reporting on that uh, apparently Russian intelligence is attacking our own government, looking for email domains that don't have some basic email security set up. Again, email is insecure, it's insecurable, but there are things you can implement to keep yourself safe, or safer anyway. SPF, DMARC, DKIM, all things you can Google look online, but basically designed to reduce the amount of spoofing that could take place. If you use those, it is very easy to, for others to see that. If you don't use them, it's also easy uh, for that to be noticed. And Russia in particular is going after those agencies that have not even set up the most basic email security features that exist. So they see that, they try to compromise those targets. Uh, and certainly uh, others will do too. So always going back to what first and foremost, emails insecure and insecurable. But there are things you can do to tamp down on email spoofing, people impersonating you online. Uh, Google some of the free email providers that you're probably used to using have these features. But if you work someplace that has uh, their own email server, their own exchange, they're not using Office 365 or whatever. Uh, certainly talk to uh, your employers to make sure that they're using those features for people you do business with. Ask them if they're, if they're employing that stuff and validating it. So always do that. But again, comes down to basic email uh, safety is one. Assume that they're spoofing. Look for odd. If you're not uh, communicating with anybody outside the United States anyway, look for uh, imperfect English. Man, many of these people are learning English uh, on the fly. They have various levels of competency, so they may be making mistakes in how they express themselves. Mouse over those links. Make sure that they're pointing to where they purport to, or even better, if you're getting a password reset email from Google or Apple or whatever, just go to the Google website, go to Apple, uh, reset the password directly instead of trusting on clicking a link. So it brings us to the end of our show. I uh, hope you got some great information out there. Again, email insecure and insecurable, but always pay attention to what you're getting. The more sensitive it is, the more likely it probably shouldn't be an email in the first place. 
Catch us online for more great content, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, Twitter and Facebook at CyberSecRadio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanak. And always thank you to our radio affiliates, AM 860 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast and AM 1020 News covering Orlando and the Space Coast. Have a great West of your weekend. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak, and we will be back next week. 